welcome to Moving Upstream, a podcast by Prevention Institute. We're a national nonprofit with offices in Oakland, Los Angeles, Houston, and Washington, D.C. Each episode, we look closely at a health or equity issue in the news to understand how we got here and to find a healthier, more equitable way forward. I'm Sandra Vieira from Prevention Institute's office in Los Angeles, and today we're talking about housing and health. It's extremely difficult to be healthy without stable, safe, and affordable housing. But in the state of California, more and more people are being forced out of their housing and onto the streets. Our guests are working in four different California communities to take on the affordable housing crisis as part of the Intersections Initiative. Intersections brings community coalitions in seven California communities into partnerships with local hospitals that are part of the Providence St. Joseph's Health System. They're working together to achieve health equity by creating healthy communities. I'd like to welcome all of our guests. Cesar Covarrubias works with the Kennedy Commission and leads the intersection initiative work in central Orange County. Stephanie Vida Pazarin is part of Global Institute for Public Strategies and leads the Intersections Partnership in the High Desert region of Southern California. Dan Sherman works for St. Joseph Health in Sonoma County, which is in Northern California. And Mark Weller works with Westside Community Improvement Association and leads the Intersections work in Eureka, California. Welcome to you all. Cesar, let's start with you. Will you tell our listeners a little bit about the housing crisis in California and why it's on the minds of so many people? Housing uh, affordability and homelessness is a crisis in California today, and it's probably our biggest challenge that we have seen in many years. The reality is that there's a need for roughly about a million and a half new affordable homes, and we have no strategy as to how to do this. And this lack of affordable housing is impacting all of our communities through health, homelessness, and also just the ability to be able to make ends meet. Traditional low-income wage winner would have to have four jobs, the equivalent of four jobs, to be able to pay an average rent in most of our communities. It's unattainable for a lot of our working families. Dan, housing is one of the social determinants of health. As someone who represents the healthcare side of the Intersections Partnership in Sonoma County, Will you share a little bit more about how housing has to do with people's health and why it matters for healthcare organizations? Well, I think the impact of housing on health is pretty direct, whether it's physical or mental. And whether it's housing instability, something as extreme as homelessness, or um, the health and safety of housing, the kinds of health exposures in substandard housing, the pressures of unaffordable housing, people cutting back on medical and food expenses to be able to pay the rent, or the location of the housing. Um, what kind of amenities do they have in a neighborhood that promote health, healthy routes, safe routes to school, things like that. So we see direct links to that, and we see direct links not only to overall community health, but specific populations that utilize the emergency department when they shouldn't be because of their housing situation. And so we know that there's a link that if we can stabilize their housing, we can affect that health, we can decrease those kinds of expenses and affect a broader kind of community health that hospitals are increasingly paying attention to. In response to this understanding that housing impacts people's health, many healthcare organizations are trying approaches like providing housing vouchers to their patients who don't have stable housing. Dan, can you explain what's different about the intersections approach by describing what strategies you're pursuing in Sonoma County? 
Of course, we still do the, the housing vouchers. We work with partners to invest in the creation of new units. But I think what's unique about the Intersections Initiative is that we're looking at a cross-sector of stakeholders who have a broad interest in housing, and we want to look at those policies that affect housing equity. So it's more than just building new units. It's how do we preserve and protect people who are in housing now and keep them from being evicted, for instance. So one of the big strategies that we're looking at is working with uh, something called the North Bay Organizing Project and legal aid of Sonoma County to create a tenants union. So we're organizing tenants for power so they have a voice that can protect their uh, tenancy, whether it be rent control or, for instance, we just passed a, an ordinance in Santa Rosa to an anti-income discrimination ordinance, and we're now working on a mandatory uh, housing inspection ordinance. So those are kind of direct policy things. Um, and then at the same time, we're also working on um, a trauma-informed practice training to bring to housing and homeless providers to train their frontline staff on how to be more trauma-informed in the way that they're dealing with that clientele, because we know that clientele is coming from a place of trauma, and there's a specialized way that you can deal with them. Mark, the housing crisis in California looks different in different communities. What does the crisis look like in Eureka, and why has your organization decided to address it through intersections? Yeah, so it's first probably helpful to know that Eureka is pretty far out there. We're in Oakland right now, and Eureka is 300 miles north of here. So if you drove for five hours north, you'd still be in California, and you'd be where we are. And Eureka is a town of just under 30,000. We're an old Victorian seaport. A lot of our housing inventory is aging, 60 years or more for a lot of our houses. Beautiful architecture falling apart. And our city and county right now have been going through our general plans, our housing elements, and grappling with this question of, how do we improve our housing? And a lot of talk has been around creating new housing. But the big elephant in the room has been, what about the housing that we have? It's getting boarded up. It's burning down. The conditions are deteriorating. That's the bulk of our units, all the units we have today. And so as a community improvement association, we worked on community wellness at the local level. We rehabilitated an abandoned school. And you just start expanding that onion. How do I help with neighborhoods? How do I help with cities? How do I move upstream to a policy level that we can work on things that improve all the conditions all the way back to the tenants that we began serving? Stephanie, let's talk about the high desert area of Southern California. The Intersections Partnership there has prioritized education, economic development, and housing. How do you and your partners see the relationship between these significant issues in the high desert region? It was interesting with the high desert when the original partners came together, wanting them to zone in on very specific issues. And we talked about a ton of issues. Transportation was a huge issue, um, education, economic development, housing. And as we kept pushing them to zone in on one issue, the partners were just reluctant and said, there's no way that we can address education and economic development without having housing as that integral part of that conversation. It's really a three-pronged approach as we're working in our region. So the high desert region is not a very known area. We actually grew and developed because of the fact that Regions like L.A. County, San Diego County were just growing so much, so we were getting a big influx of that population. So our partners are now seeing this as a really good opportunity to just be really proactive as how we think about how we develop our cities in the high desert, how we can incorporate economic development plans, our industrial plans, our education plans, along with housing so that we aren't experiencing this high volume of crisis again 10, 20, 30 years down the line. 
Stephanie, you said that L.A. and San Diego, that the high desert is not L.A. and San Diego. And oftentimes we think about housing as an urban issue. Will you share more about the unique challenges of working on housing in a community that's more geographically isolated and what strategies you're using to address that? The first challenge is that because we are more isolated, we're rural, we have smaller populations, we do have to compete with some of the larger cities that may seem like they have a, a, a just a larger problem, right, because it's right in your face. And so we have to think about, you know, how do we prioritize the need of smaller cities with the bigger cities, because the reality is that we're disconnected through a landmark. It's known as the Cajon Pass, and it's really a highway that divides our high desert from our low desert. So even if people wanted to get access to housing and services in the main hub, the larger cities, they just can't. It's a 45-minute commute on a good day. And when we're thinking about working families or families with young children, it's really hard to ask people to leave their families for that long amount of time without having the infrastructure, the support system in place to assist them with that. We also have the challenge around the fact that because the high desert was so rural, the zoning that got laid out around the high desert, we build really uh, large homes, what are known as the McMansion homes. And they're beautiful homes that when our economy was booming, a lot of people came up, you know, people sold their their homes in LA and bought these big mansions. And now um, as we're moving forward and we're having people of lower income come in, they, they can't afford these houses. And, and just thinking through the future of our high desert community, those homes of five, six, seven bedrooms, I mean, the reality is we're not going to be able to find individual families that can occupy them. So we're having to think through uh, creative ideas about what are we going to do with those homes? Are, are we going to think through turning them into uh, multifamily units, you know, and just really getting creative with those kinds of what you may call obstacles, but turning them into opportunities. You're doing some really innovative work in thinking about how to support tenants and maybe tenants who don't have as much social and political voice to be able to access healthier, affordable housing and looking at different measures for that. Can you tell us a little bit more about your work with business licenses and rental units? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. There's a neighborhood in one of the cities that I work with that is mostly renters. It's very affordable. So people like to live in the area that has a lot of historical attachment. But for a long time, there was a monopoly in that area. And and we had what are known as slumlords. And the tenants were actually afraid to report some of these concerns because of retaliation. They were afraid that their rent would go up and they'd be displaced and they'd be homeless. So one of the things that we did is that we partnered with our city and they actually adopted an ordinance that requires all renters to pull a business license because a rental unit really is a business. It's not their primary home or residence. So now they're required to pull a business license. And as part of their business license, they have to go through an annual inspection, just like any other business, so that their property can be maintained and be up to code. And what was really important to us is that that business license doesn't have a high price tag so that there's no excuse for the landlord 
to increase the rent on these properties. Uh, we also talked to the city about opportunities to use community development building funds, CDBG funds, to work with property owners that do live in their properties and seeing if they could use some of those funds to be awarded as loans that then can be converted into grants or really forgiven so that the people that are living in their homes that aren't renters can also have an opportunity to uh, invest in their properties. Mark, you are mentioning the more geographically distant, isolated nature of Eureka. What are some of the things that you're exploring and doing in your intersections work there? Some of the strategies that we've been looking at is, one, making sure that the community has a voice and making sure that the people with some power in the community, policymakers, and never forget your city staff and your county staff, they have quite a bit of power, are listening and see the value in it. That's the social responsibility that says if you listen to people and their needs now, and you craft policy that addresses those needs, that'll work, that'll last. And we've been really fortunate in our community. We've had uh, city and county staff that have wanted to think outside the box. We've had a city council, a new one that's been really innovative. And we feel like we've had this tailwind of people that say, we've got big issues in Eureka. We have, we have at times net housing loss. And we have these goals that say we need to build 700 houses in the next couple of years, and then we build like seven a year. And we say, well, okay, we did what we could, but we could do better. And so with us and our organization, it's been, how do we support folks? Stick your neck out, try something unique, know that the community backs it. How do we listen to the community and have them give input around what do you need? Um, mom and pop who live in their home and rent out a little unit on the side, a renter, um, a landlord with a numerous units, you gotta listen to everybody in our town. And, and the housing issues that we face do not spare anyone either. We have a tough time recruiting law enforcement, nurses, doctors, teachers, we have a tough time keeping folks when the conditions of your home affect the conditions of your neighborhood, affect the conditions of your city, you struggle as an entire community. And so we're looking at bringing everybody in, working together, talking about issues. We're a town without a ton of money, and we're not going to have our city bail us out and build a bunch of housing. So it's how do you invest in existing housing that you have? How do you keep it going? How do you support the growth of new things and how do you work with some of the biggest issues in town and kind of get through some of those obstacles where you say, this needs to be fixed. We have homes that are literally falling apart or about to burn down or are burning down. Um, one right across from our office burned down a couple months back. And it's just something to think about that, you know, you can't, you can't miss that one because it's not the sexy new unit that's about to be built somewhere. It's something that somebody is currently living in, and that is immediate displacement if we lose that. Cesar, tell us a little bit more about the housing situation in central Orange County and how you're working with two communities within central Orange County. Central Orange County initiative um, for intersections has is, is, uh, been really interesting. It's two communities, one of the largest cities in the county and one of the smallest cities in the county. As we narrow it down to these two communities, we ended up looking at the demographics, the needs, and we just realized that the needs were very similar uh, and the resources were not there. So we made a decision to collectively work on these two communities and use the energies of a city like Santa Ana, where we had focused central Santa Ana, we had focused many of our efforts and had some successes and built relationships with developers and with uh, city staff and also with electeds how do we replicate that in the smaller city that doesn't have that energy today? So we're using a lot of those lessons learned in the big city to help the smaller city come up with some plans. And 
interestingly enough, some of the same players in terms of development are also working in the same communities. So those relationships have really flourished and we have been able to use the examples of, hey, developer, you did this in this city. Why aren't you doing affordable housing in this city? Why aren't you doing deeper affordability in the city? And um, I think it's been a really great experience in, in working at this collectively as, as we work through different levels of county, city um, work and making sure that we are finding the resources to address needs in each city. The complexities in a larger coalition have been challenging at times, but I think it's also been an opportunity for us to have more of a global perspective of how we do our work in intersections. And it's not just about housing, mental health, and uh, economic opportunities, even though those are kind of our main pillars. It's really about building communities, about building the opportunities within those communities for our residents to thrive. And as it has been mentioned, the critical component of all this is having community participation, community residents telling you their story, their needs, and challenging you as organizations to do more than just the housing, uh, to do also tie it up and say we need health services in our community. We also need parks. We also need public safety issues. And those may not be our main priorities, but I think we've learned to integrate a lot of that work into our decision-making and also into our proposals to the cities when they see that actually investment in those communities translates to addressing a lot of those issues. Dan, for those communities and people thinking about trying to engage their local hospital or a health system, what advice would you give them? Well, what, what's in it for health systems to be working on housing at an upstream level? Just on the business end of it, cost control is a big deal in health care. And so if we can reduce the expense that we're on, on uh, of, say, avoidable emergency department visits or patients that are getting care that is inappropriate or more expensive. So we can reduce that by taking up what we call a population health approach of actually addressing some of those social determinants upstream before they get to the hospital, and that that's worthy of an investment just from a business standpoint. Now, the reality is in most communities, hospitals are nonprofits, and they are required to do community benefit investing. And so making that connection with your hospital and recognizing that it's not just making a grant or uh, it's actually coming forth as, a, as an anchor institution in a community to convene something like an intersections coalition and that there's power in that hospital to actually transform community beyond just the bottom line approach that maybe an executive might look at, but there's social justice issues that most hospitals are trying to address. Cesar, the Kennedy Commission pays close attention to housing policy at the state level. Can you tell us a bit about key policy developments or opportunities that are floating around the state um, and how those are impacting your work and impacting, and I'll open this up, impacting the work of other intersections communities? So affordable housing and homelessness have been uh, top of mind for elected officials at the state level and with the governor. And the governor has expended about $1.3 billion last year and one point. $4 billion this year on homelessness and targeting that. So there is a real interest in finding solutions to affordable housing and homelessness. We have legislation that has been passed in the past couple of years 
setting up a housing trust at the state level, also tenant protections last year with some of the uh, rent cap bills that, that allows for renters to have a little bit more breathing and uh, making sure their rents are not going to go up and if they're going to be asked to leave that there's just cause eviction. So a lot of those pressures are being addressed. The bigger issue that we see that's not being addressed is a comprehensive plan from the state legislator and from the governor as to how affordable housing and homelessness gets addressed. And the state has various needs from wildfires creating new pressures in Sonoma and other areas. And as Dan mentioned in his area, economic development being part of the housing discussion, high desert, the same thing. And in communities like Orange County and coastal cities where production of housing is happening, but it's not happening at the lower income levels where working families can afford those rents. We're seeing a lot of developments that are an average of four to $5,000 in rent highly unaffordable to our working families. So we need a comprehensive legislative fix and also a commitment from the state to be able to address this issue in, in our state. Some of the interesting propositions for this year uh, are that there is a discussion about expanding a state tax credit that would allow for more development of affordable housing. That sounds promising. There is also a discussion about creating new opportunities in high-cost cities. So high-cost cities that don't traditionally see development, there may be an opportunity through legislative reform to actually address that issue, asking high-cost cities to particularly have by-right development of affordable housing. There is a big infusion of money in homelessness. I think our task is how do we get the state to translate that to permanent affordable housing as a way to transition people into into housing? Cesar, that makes me think that really the housing crisis has been in place for a long time. And part of the reason that it's coming up for so many communities is that it's impacting middle-class families, it's impacting more affluent families, different populations. This is a question for everyone. How do we ensure that the strategies under intersections focus and have an impact on the communities that have been most affected adversely by past policies and investments? So how do we ensure that the work that you're doing under intersections supports low-income communities and communities of color? It may look different in rural cities or in in more uh, remote areas, but the affordability issue translates the same. People cannot afford uh, to live in those places because of economic reasons and because of other challenges that are impacting their health. So locally, I think there's some opportunities for us to continue our work, but at the same time, there's some state solutions that could help us bring down the, the opportunity locally by either the state requiring that there be a set amount of affordability as part of their uh, master plan of production. Uh, we, we hear the governor saying we want to produce 1.5 billion homes in the next 10 years. We don't hear how much of that would be affordable to our working families, right? And to the extent that our wages are not keeping with our housing costs, that's a real disparity that impacts our working families that we need to continue to work at the state level. and. Hopefully, a lot of those resources that are produced at the state level are trickling down to allow us to continue to do our work. Stephanie, in the high desert, how is your intersections work supporting low-income communities and communities of color? 
In the high desert, the way we work with our communities is that we're really intentional about bringing those most affected by these issues to the table. Our partners, our stakeholders, they're made up of people that are impacted by housing insecure situations. Some of them make up the systems and some of them are residents that we've been really intentional about bringing them to our conversations and ensuring that we're uplifting their voices all the way from the hospitals uh, systems to the state and even the federal level. The reality is that housing as an issue has been a reality for most folks for the last 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. I cannot imagine a time where we have not gone into low-income communities and housing has not come up as a major issue. So as we're looking forward towards solutions, it's extremely important that we continue to listen to the people that are most impacted by these issues, because if we don't, we're just going to continue to repeat the same problems. Mark, from your perspective, how do we leverage the amazing work that's happening under the seven intersection sites and maybe happening in other communities to get to our big goal of healthy, vibrant, equitable communities? The first thing to do is to remain attentive and to be humble, to know that some of the work that we're doing will take years to come into effect when it comes to paper policy changes. Those are best laid plans, but the actual outcome of that is something that you need to monitor over years, and you need to be ready to say, hey, that didn't work. We need to reframe that. And in line with that, documenting it, sharing that, letting that be a model for other cities. Uh, certainly in our work, it's been extremely helpful to call up cities around the country. We had um, in Bellingham, Washington, we called them about a rental inspection ordinance, and we got some really good insight on what's worked well, what's been tough, who's suing you about this, and how's it going? And so it's, it's relevant to do that and to say, you know, leave the egos out of it. We could have had a great idea that came through community discussions that went up, that went before the panel, that got approved, that got put into action, that didn't land super well. It might need refining. It might need adjustment. It might need to be scrapped and rebuilt. And so in our work here this year with this project, we can strike off some wins. We got some policy changes, but the real work is to monitor that, to keep a continuous feedback loop, to listen to the community, to see how things come together, to look at where attraction's happening and explore it, to look at where traction's not happening and investigate and figure out what's going on. And the other side of that is to, to remain open, to not get pigeonholed. Uh, I think in the public sector, there's funding streams that are very attractive to look at, but they can often be very focused on one domain. And the key is in a world of finite resources, in a world where everybody's there at different levels, you have to balance the investment of your attention, your time, the money, you can mobilize more sources than just public money. We've got cities looking at ways that mom and pop can subdivide land and do more with the properties that they have or ways that people can be creative about improving their community beyond just building more housing or even repairing housing, but arts projects, parks, neighborhood networks, meeting neighbors. We've got a mayor who's doing a family and children's initiative. And it's just, it's keeping attentive to those things and knowing that you can solve big issues if you keep an open mind, you listen to folks, you follow up, you keep the ego out of it, and you're willing to make change as you go along because you will learn more. You don't know what you don't know until you know it. Dan, what's felt really hard or challenging about this work in your community? Well, I think it's always challenging when you try to bring multiple interests together. It sounds like it's an easy thing to do, and it's obviously something we know needs to be done, but there's always challenge because people don't see things the same way, and they have different interests. And so getting at what their commonality is is the real challenge, and you can't always do that. We've had members drop out of the coalition because they couldn't, they couldn't um, 
you know, make it work for them. Uh, you've got organizations that come in and the coalition might want to do something, but their leadership of their organization says, oh, we can't support that for whatever reason. A lot of times a government agency, for instance, might be want to be a partner, but they can't uh, advocate. So there's all kinds of those kinds of challenges, which I don't think, you know, they, they, they're not insurmountable. They might slow you down a little bit, but that's just part of the, the, the work. And I think, you know, what we're talking about doing is, is, you know, is making democracy work and democracy is messy and you just have to live with that. Stephanie, what's been hard or challenging about this work in your community? When you look at our high desert, in comparison to the rest of California, it can actually seem really affordable. So when you're talking to our decision makers, our leaders, our folks in power, they don't see housing or the need for higher income as rising to the top. But when you're really on the ground, in the weeds, talking to the people, you start seeing some of those needs just right up front. So a big challenge that we've had is just merging those two schools of thought and saying, how can we get everyone to understand that while this issue around housing affordability and access to high paying jobs may not impact all of the folks that help create the city, it, how is it impacting your, your, your constituency, your residents? And if you don't invest in it, how will it create further problems down the line? And doing it in a very diplomatic way so that nobody feels like they're being pushed out or, you know, there's any shade being thrown at anyone because the reality is that it's really about building that collaboration and building those partnerships. Mark, what's been really hard or challenging about your work in Eureka? Two things. One, like what they said, is getting to recognize that everybody has information and knowledge. And yes, they may have special interests. We have a board of realtors that supports, you know, property owners. We have uh, homeless advocates that are really focused on one issue, but everybody knows some really interesting stuff. And to get them at the table and to get them to talk and to get them to share and not go at each other's throats is actually really beneficial. And it's been an awesome partnership with St. Joe's having our local hospital be the voice at many of those rooms because it's such a neutral, peaceful, good voice that says we are here for the community's health. We're not here for a special interest. We're not here to advance a certain agenda that we walked in with. We're here for the community's health. That's been vital. The other side of it has been um, being willing to help uplift the voice of really unattractive issues, things that aren't the sexy brand new thing, things that are just infrastructural or working on existing housing or working on like the sewers causing problems all over town. And how do we address that too, in addition to all these exciting things like building new parks and building new housing? Cesar, what's been hard or challenging about your intersections work in Central Orange County? working with community residents that have many needs and even though we've highlighted uh, three big critical needs economic development mental health and housing we continue to see that there's immediate need for support now and as we know public policy and advocacy to change systemic problems takes time and it's not a solution for for today so when you're engaging low-income residents as part of your work part of the challenge has been great, that's going to benefit me in five years, but what about today? What about my needs today? So figuring out a way to move those two forward has been a bit of a challenge, but uh, uh, at the same time, a recognition that if we want to do the work with community members, we need to address some of those needs. We may not be able to address all of them, but we have to try to figure out a way to keep them motivated. 
Before we wrap up, I'd like to give all of you an opportunity to tell our audience about any lessons you've learned or advice you might have for other communities that want to improve health and address health inequities by taking on housing. Stephanie, let's start with you. We need to make sure that we keep the community voice at the center of the conversations and that we're being really intentional about thinking long-term. Since I talked earlier about the governor having great plans for homelessness now, and as I've now been thinking through it, so has our city. And yet, are we thinking through long-term plans? What's that long-term vision for all of our families? Mark, what advice do you have for our listeners? Your voice matters a lot. If you're a resident out there, a community organizer, and you're feeling in any way discouraged about trying to tackle these big issues, policy issues, upstream issues, know that there are so many meetings at your city and county level that you show up and they said, we're going to bring in the residents. And then everybody there is on the payroll. And they are so desperate and eager to see actual residents come and share their actual experiences and give their actual input. And that can really craft major policy change. And so just just know, show up at the table, stay encouraged, not discouraged. Come, try, be ready to hold people to task and also be ready to work with them tomorrow even if they have a comeuppance today. Cesar, uh, what words of wisdom would you offer? Being part of a process is critical. Being part of a, an initial planning tool, whether it's a general plan amendment, whether it's a a rezoning makes a difference because you want to be part of that change, but it also allows you the opportunity to continue to follow that in the implementation. So you want to make sure that whatever they're proposing makes makes sense for your community and it's addressing your community needs and you have the ability to be engaged in the future on that. I would just say that this is a very challenging time for a lot of our communities, but at the same time, it's a great opportunity for us to all continue to be engaged Dan, you've got the last word, and I'm sure you'll make it an inspiring one. (laughs) Well, I would say that there's a tension between the short term and the long term. There's a tension between upstream and downstream, and you have to recognize that and almost embrace it. It's not an either or. We can't ignore either one. I think a lot of communities, we in our community, I think it happened where this big fire disaster and we were we were working on upstream issues and that forced us to come back and say, oh, no, we got to have this immediate thing we have to work on. And that doesn't mean you lose sight of the upstream. And so I think that's, a, from my perspective, a lot of I remind our people, it's like, hey, we're working on all ends of the spectrum and it's okay. It's not an either or and it's okay that, that we're, we're paying attention to both ends. I want to thank all of our guests for spending this time with us and showing us what's possible when we work together to make our communities healthy. I'd also like to give a special thanks to the St. Joseph Health Community Partnership Fund for their support with Intersections Initiative. To learn more, visit our website at intersectionsinitiative.org. Thanks to our audience for joining us for this episode of Moving Upstream. To learn more about today's show, visit our website at preventioninstitute.org. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback about this podcast. Find us on Twitter. We're at Prevention Inst. That's Prevention, I-N-S-T. 